Uh, good to see all of you today, and um, we're in uh, the last part of the first chapter of Titus, and my sense is um, we won't get out of this chapter today, because there are some really important things I want to do. It has the strong, strong probability of several bunny trails, so we'll see here. But uh, verse 10 through the end of the chapter, verse 16, we did start that. We're well into this, but this is the section, it's paragraph on false teaching. But if you remember, it is the reason why Paul wants Titus to teach sound doctrine. Because there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. They, uh, the three descriptive elements of false teachers, of heretics, it is also important to remember in this paragraph that these are people within the church. This isn't outside the church. I mean, these are people that are within the church. Now, remember, the church is very young. We're only, you know, a couple of decades after Jesus went back to the Father. So I'm just keeping all that in mind because the church is growing like crazy, but it's, it's in a context of, people who are coming out of a Greco-Roman way of thinking about things and out of a Jewish way of thinking about things and are all in the church. <laughs> and so, I mean, that just you just have to try to remember what this would have been like. And not many of them are well taught. You don't have anybody going to seminary. You don't have anyone with doctors in theology. It's just, just keeping all that in mind. So Paul is warning Titus again, remember... There are people in the church who are insubordinate, they're rebellious, empty talkers, they really don't have anything meaningful to say, and they're deceivers, they're deceptive. They're consciously, willfully, intentionally teaching something that's contrary to what you are. And then he cites an example which would have been very, well, I think it would be accurate to say, pretty widespread in the early church. He calls them the circumcision party. They're called that in uh, the book of Galatians. They're called that in the other pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy particularly. Now, the circumcision party is also not in the Bible, but in other summary statements of what's going on, a group of people called the Judaizers. Now, again, that doesn't help, but it's just a label that you may come across if you do any study in this, but let, let me talk a little bit about the circumcision party. Now, remember a couple of things. Circumcision, which you all know what that is, but circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. You go back to Genesis 15, Genesis 17 to, to see that. And so when he brings that up, that means this is a group of people in the church who are trying to keep the teaching about Jesus but also keep all the teachings of Judaism. Now, those two sentences make sense to you? In other words, circumcision, the sign of the covenant, keeping of the Sabbath, keeping of the feast days, keeping of all the elements. So they're trying to mix the two. And so it would make sense why they would be in the church, because these are Jewish. Because remember, uh, again, these are historical things, but if you don't, know this or remember this, it, it kind of gets confusing. But remember, as a result of the number of captivities and different things that had happened to the Jewish people over the years, is what they call the diaspora. They were spread all out the Mediterranean world. That's why the early leaders of the church, the first place they go to when they go into a city is go to the synagogue and preach and teach about Jesus and so on. And so you can understand and that's even true today in 2018 with many Orthodox Jews, for you to teach, preach, and talk to them about Jesus being the Messiah and that the Old Covenant and all of the things the Old Testament fulfilled, you don't need those anymore. You're challenging everything that's important in their life, everything that's a part of their identity and who they are. And so, it, I mean, in that sense, it's understandable why you would have an element in the church saying, I just don't want to give up some of this stuff. So I still want to keep the feast days. I still want to keep the law. I still want to, I mean, all that stuff. 
And so Paul then says, look at, look at his strong, strong admonition. They must be silenced. There isn't a lot of dispute, and it's categorical. <laughs> Were they also trying to remain maybe a little bit exclusive? They didn't want to include the Gentiles? Yeah, that's, that's kind of another element of it, and that would always be a problem uh, for these early decades of the church. That was one of the reasons why in, in Acts 15, what is called the Jerusalem Council, which occurred in AD 49, there was all the leaders of the church gathered and they decided um, Gentiles are coming into the church and we who are Jews must accept them because the gospel knows no ethnic, national, language barriers. And I mean, it was a struggle. It was a struggle for both sides. So here you now see, by here I mean in the book of Titus, you now see, you know, we're in the 60s, you now see the Jewish people in terms of the church are the minority. They're no longer the majority, they're a minority. Because more and more Gentiles are coming to faith, and and that's where it's really (coughs) exploding. And so the Jewish element that remained in the church would be in a minority. And, I, and, you know, just that's just a kind of a fact. But Paul's very adamant. I mean, again, look, they must be silenced. Why? Since they're upsetting whole families. Now, again, that makes sense because false teaching will divide families. And so he's just making a... It, it's, it's a reason why they must be silenced, but they're upsetting the most important institution God ever created, the family. It's the key to civilization. It's the key to order. It's the key to everything that goes from generation to generation to generation. So Paul is laying down a marker here that's really important. You can't tolerate this. Titus, you're the leader of the church in Crete. You can't tolerate this. So you must silence them, which, another way, you must deal with it. Because of this, they're teaching for shameful gain that they ought not to teach. It gives us a little bit of an idea of the motive, the, 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 the shameful gain. I mean, it could be financial, but it could be just self-elevating. And, you know, I'm important because I'm teaching this, this error or whatever. And, I mean, it's just all the, that goes beyond, uh, goes behind a shameful gain. What, what are they gaining from this? He doesn't spell it out, but he's telling us their motives are not pure. The second thing he says is, and it, it's, it's almost humorous, but he quotes from one of the Greek prophets, or he's really a philosopher, one of the Greek philosophers that came from Crete. His name was Epimenides. I know you've all heard of him. You've all read his work. But he's, a, he's an ancient philosopher. And he quotes from him, and he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Verse 13, this testimony is true. Meaning, these false teachers, it applies to them. This quote of Epimetides, I'm telling you, that's just what they are. They're liars, they're evil beasts, and they're lazy gluttons. So he then concludes, therefore, rebuke them sharply. Now, the ESV's translated that, that Greek word sharply, and that's a good translation, but, but sharply, decisively, clearly and categorically. In that phrase, rebuke them sharply, that clause, there is no room for compromise. There's no room for mixing. Rebuke them sharply. But now notice what he says. Here's the intended purpose, that they may be sound in the faith. And the word sound is the same word that's used up in verse 9. Healthy, they may sound be spiritually healthy, spiritually mature. So here's a question. What is Paul's goal for these false teachers in the church? That they may be restored that they may learn what they're teaching is not conducive to spiritual health and growth, but just the opposite. So I want to restore them. So it's just, I mean, I'm working my way through this. It's not hard 
But he's, he's making it very clear. Titus, you're the leader of the church in Crete. You cannot tolerate this error in the church. Silence them and rebuke them with the goal that you'll get them back to truth. One thing here, too, uh, we, we have uh, cell phones, we have a computer, we can bring speeches up, we can... But back then, what was said was heard, and that was the only recording, basically, that took place in the church at that time, right? I mean, just correct mm -hmm. me if I'm wrong and, and guide me there. So it was really important when people spoke in the church that they spoke correctly as far as doctrine and truth because you've got a wide audience that could at best when we say something that we think is plain it's misinterpreted but even more here critical to their spiritual growth and development and, and belief of the young kids maybe that are in that church that it be accurate Yes. And, yes. and and consistent and if somebody else spouts off or says something there it could really confuse a body of people meeting at that it could be very divisive and very counter counterproductive in the, in the fellowship that's right that's absolutely right I mean this um, th there were always two things in the ancient church, and it really would, would go on for a couple hundred years, but two things that always marked the gathering of the believers, the gathering of the saints. One was extensive reading from the Bible, which would be all the Old Testament texts, but also the circulating New Testament books. Now, you know, there's not all of them circulating at once. That takes a little time until they're all gathered together. But anyway... So there was extensive reading from the Word of God for the very reason you said at the beginning. People didn't have access to a printed book. It was way too expensive because everything was hand-copied. And, of course, there were no electronic devices or anything like that. So, yeah, it, so that's why, and that still should be true today, but that's why there is this continual striving for accuracy and precision of so that when you hear the Word of God read, old and early circulating New Testament books, that it is always corroborated by what the preacher, the teacher, whatever, is saying. Uh, I'm doing a study in the book of Acts on another one of my classes, and um, we're just today getting into Acts 17. And in Acts 17, you have a group of people at a little church in Berea, one of the cities a little bit south of Thessalonica, and you know what it says? It's really cool. You know what it says to them? They'd hear Paul preach. They'd go home and check it all out in the scriptures. Yeah, I mean, just just they they really did. They would they would go home and they would make sure. Here, Paul's telling us that that Jesus Christ's birth and death uh, death on the cross fulfills Isaiah fifty three. So they would go and read Isaiah fifty three. Yeah, he's right. Or that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was was prophesied in Psalm twenty two and Psalm sixteen. And they go back. He's right. So, you know, you know, you I want you guys to be good Bereans, which a lot of you are. You you're you email me things and all that. But I mean that's that's good. And so this accuracy and precision was absolutely essential in a verbal culture, which is what this was. Much more than us today. We we're a very visual culture in, in audio audio audible culture. Woody. Okay, I, uh, that verse 13, I, I had a hard time with that. I said that uh, Christians are always liars, evil beasts, mm -hmm. and gluttons. And I thought earlier that we thought that anybody that was in Crete was a Cretan. And uh, I thought he was bad mouthed and everybody that was in Crete, you know. Yeah. Because you did explain that there was kind of. It was kind of rough in Crete. They, they didn't really, you know, they did a lot of things that. Well, they had that reputation, unfortunately, uh, in the ancient world. But what Paul was doing, he's saying, here's what Epimenides said of the people in Crete. 
In regards to these false te teachers, that testimony is true. That's exactly what they are. It's not a racial or ethnic slur. Like we would say, all black people are liars, evil beasts, and lazy guttons. That's a horrible thing to say. Yeah. Or all Hispanics are. That's like what we, we stereotype people. We, we have a tendency to sometimes do that. But that's not what Paul's doing. He's quoting from Epimenides that they would know and say, the false teachers are like this. This is what they're like. They're just like this statement. Now, just note one more thing, and then we're going to get to what's going to take some time. Um, we want them to be sound in the faith. We, we want to restore, we want to get them back, not devoting themselves to Jewish myth and commands of people who turn away from truth. That gives you a little bit of an insight again, the, the Judaizers, that people want to mix the worship of Jesus with all of the old Jewish traditions. We don't want to give those up. And the commands of people who their authority is human authority, not God's authority. Now, verse 15. So any any other question? I mean, this isn't real difficult, but uh, yeah, Ed. Did these people know Paul's history prior to being a Christian? Because he's a perfect one to say, um, um, to have something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He was that other side. That's right. That's right. That's right. You know, I don't know if I can answer that completely, Ed. I mean, um, as Paul's, uh, what the right word I'm looking at, as Paul's role as an apostle and an apostolic leader spreads, yes, I think a, a lot of people would know his story. Because one of his challenges, and you see that beginning of Galatians, you see it in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, is many people challenged him as an apostle. You're not a real apostle. You really don't have the right to call yourself that. And he would defend himself that I am an apostle, and therefore if I'm an apostle, I have apostolic authority, and it was kind of important in the early church. So, you know, I don't know how, if I can answer it in terms of Crete, and, and if, I don't know that, but I would have a sense that many may have known that, because we're in the 60s. Paul's been ministering now for a couple of decades, and his, his reputation and the effects of what he's doing in all the churches he's planted all over the Mediterranean world, I'm rather suspecting would be, it's an oral verbal culture, but still, he was, so they may have known some of his background, but I just, there's no way I can argue that with, 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 with total conviction. I just don't know for sure. Okay? Now, verse 15. Verse 15, in a sense, is a test of these false teachers' character. And verse 16 is a test of their conduct. Now, in verse 15, a test of their character, he's zeroing in, he's zeroing in on what these false teachers, these Judaizers, the circumcision party, because remember I tried to explain who they are, in terms of, of what they would have stood for. It's almost like a proverb. Now, I'm going to read it, and it, it's not easy at first to grasp, but we read it a couple of times, I think you can, you can discern what he's saying. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Semicolon. <coughs> Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now, the pronoun there, T-H-E-I-R, is referring to the false teachers. So their mind and their consciences are defiled. How do you know that? Now, listen, this is what's really, really important. This marker, is it good or is it evil? It can be used both ways. Both ways. My iPhone, good or evil? Evil. <laughs> You're going to go with evil. <laughs> All right, I don't, uh, nobody had. Suppose I put a, uh, a slab of ham on the table, and you're a Judaizer. What would you say? 
get rid of it. You'd say it's evil. Okay, so what what Paul is doing in and like it's it it's really kind of a proverb: to the pure, all things are pure; but to the defiled, unbelieving, nothing is pure. The Judaizers. Now you have to follow this string of sentences that I'm about to utter. The Judaizers are assigning spiritual value to things. A cell phone, an iPhone, is evil. No Christian should own a cell phone. They have taken a morally neutral material thing and assigned moral value to it. Then that's called legalism. We are on this side of the cross. All of the structures of Judaism have been fulfilled. Paul will write in another book of his, circumcision means nothing. Can you imagine how difficult it would be for a Jewish person to process that? Because we're on this side of the cross. Jesus fulfilled and completed all this. It's no longer necessary. The old covenant is gone and has been replaced by the new covenant. The new order has dawned. So the idea of kosher food, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter anymore. All right, now, to assign moral value to some neutral physical thing is to cross into that never-never land of legalistic righteousness. Jesus said, when he was asked a question, what defiles is not what you put in your stomach. It's what's in your heart. What defiles is what comes out of a man's mouth, not what a man puts into his mouth. Which again, for a Jewish person in the first century, hear somebody say that, would have said, what? You're saying everything that in that time of Jesus, my 1,500 years of tradition says that what you just said is wrong. So let's talk a little bit about this. What Paul is bringing up to Timothy here is, Timothy, Christian liberty is a major premise of the new order of things. You are free in Christ. Kosher laws no longer matter. Observing feast days no longer matter. Bringing sacrifices to the altar no longer matter. It's all been completed in Christ. It's over. So, now listen to this, this rhetorical question. Does Christian liberty mean libertinism? Do you know what libertinism means? Libertine, you can do whatever you want. Is, is that what it is? Christian liberty means you can do whatever you want? All right. You have to always think about two categories here. This is really important. I mean, this is really important in how we think of a lot of stuff that's in the New Testament, but also how we think about our life in Christ. When Jesus says, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. What's he talking about? We have two major areas in our lives. Moral ethical standards of God revealed in Scripture. What's the only acceptable response to that? Okay, you obviously didn't hear that question, so I'll repeat it. The moral ethical standards of God revealed in Scripture. What's our only acceptable response to that? It's true. How about obedience? How about obedience? (laughs) Okay. You're almost like my students used to be. 
They look at me with a deer in the headlight look. I have no idea what you just asked me. In other words, like the, you know, a good summary of the moral ethical standards of God are the Ten Commandments, right? You come to Christ, does Christian freedom me? I now I have the freedom to lie. Is that Christian liberty? No. No. Now I have the freedom to steal and appropriate someone else's property. Is that true? That's libertinism, to do whatever you want. No. The only acceptable response to the, to the moral, ethical standards of God is obedience. To be in Christ doesn't mean I have the freedom to now just never treat my parents with respect and dignity. To lie, to, to appropriate, to steal people's property. No. The moral law of God still stands. It's obedience of the Ten Commandments. That's an example. I mean, there are a lot more ethical standards in God's Word, but the summary of it is the Ten Commandments. We, when we were in the book of Exodus a year or two ago, we looked at some of that. Now, I'm, just, I'm trying to get you to think through what the Apostle Paul is saying here, but in the non-moral issues of life, you know, non-moral, where it's, it's not clearly stated in the Bible, but what categories in your life and my life today would fit into this? Well, since you're not in a real talkative mood, I'll just suggest a couple. Wouldn't entertainment fit in this? Entertainment issues. The Bible doesn't have any clarity at all on what you do with a TV set. Does it? No. You may watch this, 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 but don't watch this, this, this. You don't find that in the Bible. That doesn't exist. Or how about leisure time choices? Okay? How about my iPhone or my computer or, I mean, I could just look, you can make this list almost, there's no length, there's no end to it. Just all kinds of these non-moral areas of life. How about a $100,000 sports car and, and red lights? Hmm. Well, a red light, that's kind of, that's over here because you are to obey authority because it was created by God. Let me put this here. There's a wonderful verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. That is at the end of a three-chapter discussion by the Apostle Paul on Christian liberty. He's bringing it to a conclusion, and he says, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So, what is more holy and sacred 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning or 7 p.m. on a Monday morning? 7 a.m. on a Monday morning. Which is more sacred? Which is more holy? Yeah, either one. They're both holy. They're both holy. Sunday morning, you go to worship. Monday morning, you go to work. They're both sacred and holy. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all the glory of God. What's more sacred? An organ or an electric guitar? In and of itself, those instruments are morally neutral, right? I mean, you may have opinions on that, but they're morally neutral. An electric guitar is not evil innately. Okay, um, what's more sacred? Being a pastor or being a plumber? They both are. They both are. A plumber who loves Jesus Christ, whatever you do, eat, drink, whatever you do, do all the glory of God. You work hard, you're dependable, you're trustworthy, you're bringing glory to God. You see, what we have the tendency to do, which is really, really detrimental to our witness, is we compartmentalize things into sacred and secular. Because to the disciple of Jesus Christ, all things are to be sacred. Question, is good, getting a good night's rest sacred and holy and glorifying God? Yes. 
I'm not saying that flippantly. Yes. That's being a good steward of your body. Is brushing your teeth sacred? Yes. It's being a good steward of your body. Friday, I was out, you know, it was a nice day. I was clearing off all my wife's flower beds from all the, you know, dead growth of winter and all that. Was that something, that, what I was doing, is that sacred? Yes, it is. I'm caring for, I'm being a creative cultivator with God who has trusted me with that little piece of property. It's his, I'm just a dominion steward of it. It's his, he's the owner. You, you see, once, once, we really get this. It brings a dimension of joy and fulfillment and excitement about how we live our lives. And it helps to avoid the false guilt that so many Christians are burdened down with. That. I'm not a pastor, so I'm not doing things as meaningful to the Lord as my pastor. If you believe that, you have embraced something heretical. You really have. And I, that's a strong word, but you have. That is contrary to everything in the Bible. God assigns stewardship responsibilities at his discretion based on talents and the way he creates his people. Your job is to be a good steward. Paul says this. Jesus says this. What I want you to do be is to be faithful in doing what I called you to do. What is always required of a steward? That he be faithful. And I mean, this is one of the things that the Reformation really unleashed. Calvin wrote a lot about this. Luther wrote a lot about this. The peasant in the field is just as important as the pastor in the church in what God's doing. That's, you know, that is often, that is not how we think about that. And that we should not think that way. We should think, well, I mean, we should think that way, not the way we can compartmentalize things. And that, that, is, that, is, that is a freeing, liberating way to live. And so in avoiding, and so what, what, what Paul is doing here, to the pure, all things are pure. Who, who's the pure? The person who's godly, who's serious, committed to Jesus Christ, and understands that everything you do is eternally significant. So everything's pure. Now this can be a tool for evil, but what is the what is the, Paul says? Not in that First Corinthians eight nine ten, he says, "All things are permissible, but I will not be mastered by anything." That applies to this. There's nothing wrong with this. This isn't evil innately, but I want to make sure I control it, not it controlling me. And when you see people just walking on texting, and they're, you know, the moment they sit down, they're immediately on that. And you just, it's not that that's evil, but you start to ask, who is really in control here? This device or the person that has a device? That's just a question. And so for you and me, it's just Paul's, I will not be mastered by anything. He's not talking about sin. I mean, obviously that's true, but Jesus broke the power of sin. He's talking about, in, that's in the context of this liberty, it's, I will not be controlled or mastered by anything. My Lord and Master Jesus Christ, he controls me, nothing else does. And that's why the ninth fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And so what, what Paul is doing here, and it's, it's getting into the Judaizers' core they developed a whole set, well, maybe I should say they maintained a whole set of Jewish practices and traditions are binding the conscience of everybody else. You're a Christian? Ah, okay, you still got to be circumcised. Still have to observe the Sabbath. Still have to keep the feast days. Why? Well, because that's part of the Bible. That's part of, but wait a minute. The Bible says that Jesus fulfilled all that. Its role and job is done. We no longer need to do it. But we still have to do it. No. And that's just, you can see how people can follow that. Because listen, I want to I make another comment. This is really, really important. Because he brings in the mind and the conscience of these teachers are both defiled. Now let's think about that. Their mind and their conscience are defiled. 
Well, the mind is not as difficult because, you know, your mind is easily distorted by factual error, by theological heresy, and you believe a lie. But what about conscience? I want to come back to that, I think so. I'm going to erase Fred Penmanship. Thank you. Yeah, I was paying you a compliment. It's so neatly written. You can read what Fred writes. You can't read what I write. This is this is a term. I don't believe I've ever heard a sermon preached on this. But the term conscience. It's used 31 times in the New Testament. It's not in the Old Testament. There's no Hebrew word for conscience. So, what does the word conscience mean? Look at the hands not go up. Look at the mouths not open. It's a very difficult term to define, isn't it? It really is. Isn't it the power to ponder power to prioritize, power to attribute a feeling to a situation. <clears throat> I would suggest that they're probably the results of conscience, okay. not what conscience necessarily is. See, con- conscience is one of those mysterious words. It sounds good, it sounds spiritual, but we really don't know what it means. Well, isn't it supposed to mean the difference? We should be aware of the difference between right and wrong. All right. Uh, did you ever, my daughter loved Disney's Pinocchio. Did you ever watch Pinocchio with your kid? And Pinocchio had a conscience. It was called Jimmy Cricket. You know, I mean, if you've ever seen the movie or the cartoon or whatever. And in a way, that was true. He was always, well, at least for the most part, his, his role was to help Pinocchio, who was a marionette or puppet or something, whatever he was, who eventually comes to life, but trying to guide him into doing what is right and wrong, what is wise, what is unwise. So conscience has two applications. Guiding us in the moral errors of life, guiding us in the non-moral errors of life. Conscience is to be informed and taught and instructed by the Holy Spirit. And that's rather clear in the moral areas of life. Guiding us, directing us, encouraging us. But in the non-moral areas of life. That's why I want to call, I wrote an article one time on this, the conscience is a set of deeply held convictions. In these non-moral areas of life. You, you want to use the word sense. It's a sense of deeply. Yeah, in these areas yeah. of life. And I mean, we can put a long list here. In these areas of life, you are developing a set of convictions for you because of who you are what struggles you've had with sin in the past and what is the wisest path for you to follow in these unmoral errors now for example let me illustrate how devastating this can be if you don't take it seriously suppose I develop a conviction that I really don't think it's wise for me to have a cell phone as a matter of fact I think it's a sin for me to have a cell phone And then I universalize it for every Christian as a test of sanctification. What have I just done? And what have I created? A legalistic standard. All Christians should abandon cell phones. What verse is that? That's not in the Bible. But I believe that's a strong conviction. I have many Christians to follow it. Okay. I mean... I mean, those, it's taking a conviction you have 
and universalizing it for everyone. That is what the Pharisees did. So, now listen, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You should have convictions in the normal areas of life. How do you discern the two? Some, some of the things you get pretty upset about, you know, how are we supposed to discern those things versus uh, the dancing? Okay, okay. Now, how, how do we approach, or let me even back up a, even a step earlier. How do I begin to look at these non-moral areas of life? You and I live in an age where whether it's entertainment or leisure time choices or the kind of foods and drinks and all the things that we can enjoy, all of that stuff, how do I decide when the Bible doesn't say anything about it? For example, should I read, I've had parents ask me this a number of years ago, should I let my children read the Harry Potter books? That's a very important question. Is there anything in the Bible about Harry Potter? No. So is it a sin to read that? That's doing what Paul says here. You're taking, you're taking something that in and of itself has no moral value, and you're assigning very sin. It's like no Christian should ever read the Harry Potter books. How about Pokemon? I had parents that, should I let my kids play Pokemon? Should I let them buy the Pokemon cards? Or... Should I go see, should I let my kids go see this movie? Should I let my, my, my response, every time I said, that is not my role to bind your conscience on convictions I have. You decide. Now here's where, here's, here's where it gets difficult. What are the biblical words? Wisdom, discernment, understanding, prudence. They're the biblical words in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And the convictions that I develop are probably going to be different than Fred's or Fred too, or you know, all the others around the table. And that's it's okay. I, I when I joined faculty years ago in 1983, it was a man on the faculty that made the decision that I don't have a television set. But he, he didn't make a big deal out of it, but he just chose that. What if he would have universalized had no Christian shop of television? He's creating a performance-based Christianity. And he has no responsibility to do that. So to assign ethical value to a material object is very dangerous. Or a non-moral area of life is very dangerous. Does it mean I don't make decisions about that? No, that's not what it means. You see, the, you, you see the tension that this starts to develop? In John chapter 17, verses 13 through 18, Jesus says, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. That's the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And he prays to the Father when they put their faith in me, don't take them home. But as you sent me into the world, we're sending them into the world. I wish you wouldn't have prayed that. Don't you wish you would have prayed, Father, the moment they put their faith in me, take them home to glory. But what if he did that? Who would be left? Who would be the salt and light to represent the king? There wouldn't be anybody left. So as Father sent Jesus in the world, who is not of the world, but in the world, so you and I are in the world, but we're not of the world. I don't know about you, but as I start thinking about that, there's tremendous tension there. In the world, but not of the world. Where's the line? Do I so separate from the world, go up on a mountaintop, put on a white robe, and just wait for Jesus to come back? Is that the assignment? No, I don't think so. Does it then mean that I'm just so thoroughly involved and accommodating to the culture that you can't tell the difference between the way I live my life and the way my pagan Buddhist neighbor lives his life? No. <laughs> so you start to see the tension? And what Paul is saying here is, to the pure, all things are pure. To those who are committed to Jesus Christ, they see the eternal significance of everything they do. 
There is no mundane, innocuous thing of life that God's not interested in. But he gives, in these non-moral areas, he gives you and me the stewardship responsibility to live wisely. And you see, what I'm saying here, you don't like that. And a lot of people don't like that. I've had, but just give me the list of books that I had let my kids read. Give me the list of movies I can watch, let my kids watch. The problem with that is, what do you want me to do every week? Update the list? You see, what I'm, then I'm taking the responsibility of binding your conscience with convictions I've developed in these non-moral areas of life. That's not my responsibility. And that inhibits you from developing spiritual maturity. They're abdicating their responsibility. See, that's why it's so easy. That's why it's so easy to follow a legalist. They've done all the thinking for you, just tell me. They've, they've worked it all out, presumably. But that's also, you're right on the cusp of cult leaders. And there are, there are quote, cult, close cult leaders within Christianity. It's a particular brand of certain things, and that's what you follow. And you don't think much about it. You don't, you're not a Berean. You don't take what they're saying and check it with Scripture. And that's just, that's the easy way. Well, I, maybe I shouldn't say it. It's, it's, one of the, it's, it's one of the choices that often people make. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. I'm not talking about in the moral, not the other side, in the moral areas of life, the clear ethical. No, the only acceptable response is obedience. You never have to pray through and struggle with, Lord, should I steal that? Give me clarity, Lord, should I steal that? No, he's already revealed his will in that area. But Lord, what should I do with my 13-year-old and their cell phone. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. In and of itself, it's not evil. It's your, but depending on how it's used, it becomes an ethical issue. Depending on how it's used, it becomes an issue of wisdom and discernment. Discernment is insight into the consequences of your choices. A five-year-old has no discernment. But you would hope a 25-year-old does. And so what Paul is laying down is a maxim, an axiom, a principle. To those who are spiritually mature, all things are pure. Because every part of their life is under the authority of Jesus. And they're seeking to bring glory to the Lord in everything they do. But in those moral areas, you're going to see an expression of lots of diversity on how people live their lives. Some of the choices Fred makes in some of those areas or, 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 or any of you guys makes, in those, you're going to have some diversity. Not everybody's going to be making exactly the same choices. My mother, she's 91 years old. She told me this. It was just one of the most extraordinary things, but it was such a classic example. I grew up in a, I always grew up in the 50s and very early 60s till I got out of high school. And the church in which I grew up was a very strong, and I don't, I don't mean this unkindly, but I'm honest to say it, very legalistic approach to things. The term that was used back then was fundamentalist. And it was very clear no Christian should ever go to movies. Just absolute. No Christian should ever go to movies. Well, The Sound of Music came out. And my mother loved the music, Sound of Music. She, she had gotten a record of it, because you might have been on Broadway first, and then was, and I forget who it was, Julie Andrews and somebody else was the star of it, but Christopher Palmer, right. And she really wanted to see it. So, now, this, this, just think of this. My mom and dad lived their entire life in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So what they did is they drove to Hershey, Pennsylvania, which is about 60 miles to the west, 55 miles to the west, and they went to a movie theater there to see The Sound of Music. Why did they do that? Because Mom had this haunting fear 
that some member of her church would see her go into that movie theater. Yeah. Men and women, that's not freedom. Men and women, all men. Then that's not freedom in Christ. That you choose not to go to a movie is not a sin. That's not a sin. But to universalize it and say, as an axiom of life, no Christian should ever go to a movie, that may be your conviction, but you're universalizing that conviction, universalizing that and making it a test of sanctification and creating enormous false guilt in people's lives. I studied on a guy named Howard Hendricks, and Hendricks, he, he always taught to just shake you up to, and he say something provocative. You know, many Christians are going to get to heaven, and Jesus is going to look them in the eye and say, you know, I really wanted you to enjoy it more. I really wanted you to enjoy it more. Now, you, 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 none of you know Hendricks, but I, I spent quite a few years with him. But he was he he he's right. Christianity is that haunting thought that somewhere someone is happy. That's H. L. Mencken's definition of a Christian. And you don't know who he is either. But what what I'm saying to you is the joy of life for the Christian is we know who we are and we're secure in that. We are clearly seeking in our choices to bring glory to the Lord in everything we do. And I have freedom in these non-morals. And because I may choose differently than you doesn't make me a sinner or you a sinner or any one of us spiritual elite group. Uh Uh-uh. We're always wrestling with the freedom we have in Christ, being in the world but not of the world, but choosing and developing conviction that are based on who we are in Christ, but also the unique, what we came out of, the habits and patterns of sin in our thought life. That's why some of the choices we make as a Christian are because of that. I just can't handle that. You may be able to handle it. It won't have no effect on you, but even something mundane and innocuous can... So it's best for me to just stay away from it. You see, Peggy and I, a number of years ago, we used to watch, uh, you know, before we would, would begin to get ready for bed, we'd watch um, uh, Sean Hannity, and the guy right before him, he would dismiss for moral reasons. O'Reilly. Yeah, O'Reilly. And, you know, you watch this too. You know, Bill O'Reilly for an hour and then Sean Hannity for an hour. So then you're ready for bed. I mean, you know, your mind is just, you know, what, I, I'm not making any political statement. All I'm saying is you just, you, night after night you do it. And then what we found, every night we go to bed all churned up. And then the, and you wake up in the morning. So that's what you're thinking about. You wake up in the morning, you're still thinking about that stuff. And so about two, two and a half, maybe it's even got close to three, we just made the decision we're not going to do that anymore. It isn't because we agreed or disagreed. We just didn't think that was wise. So if I universalize that and say, no Christian should watch that before you go to bed, that's not, I don't have the right to do that. It's for me, it's a wise decision, it's one that fit us, but it doesn't mean you have to do that. You have the freedom to do it or not do it, it doesn't matter. That's, what, that's part of it. one of the books I want to write here before I die. I've got it all mapped out. It's going to be entitled Strategy for Holiness. That's one of the strategies. You must face those things. What are the patterns and habits of my life? And I'm thinking through discernment, the insight into the consequence. What are the consequences? This is very innocuous. Nothing wrong with it. It's not evil. But what's the effect of it in my life? How's it affecting my relationship with the Lord? How's it affecting my relationship with my wife before we're getting ready for bed? You follow what I'm saying? That's what I'm talking about here. And so it is incumbent upon us to... What does he say? Your mind and your conscience are defiled. We don't want that. We're renewing our minds, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Mind renewal, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. But also we're developing a mature conscience, not a weak conscience. The Bible talks about that. Not a seared conscience, but a mature conscience. Clarity of what is right and wrong, the moral law of God, Wisdom and how I deal with the non moral areas of life. 
Jim on this road to Emmaus. Uh, <clears throat> we're all sort of on this road to Emmaus. Not sort of. We are all on this. So go ahead. And um, I think what we're talking about here should allow us, um, create in us a mind of tolerance for for where others are. That's right. And where we can also learn from others as we share Mm -hmm. this, uh, assuming that the parties that are in this dialogue have a real desire uh, to live for Christ and in a way that brings glory to God. And, and it would also maybe allow us more patience in talking with others who don't believe as we believe and allow them to express that thought because sometimes we don't know how we feel about something sometimes unless we dialogue with someone else and talk about them and get it out there and we mm-hmm. and we realize I don't even know if I believe that I I think I do and as we move toward this road to the kingdom of heaven that we learn from one another just like in this group here we're learning based on this truth and it fits us differently. But as a compliment, we do compliment and can learn from one another. Absolutely. By, okay. by sharing Christ's love, God's mm-hmm. love for us uh, with, with others. We are not the judge, as you said. Mm-hmm. We are a witness. And we can learn so much more, maybe, by listening to others um, and seeing that it is so, mm-hmm. comparing it to this book. Well, yeah, I mean, it, I liked how you put it at the beginning of your comment, a, a tolerance, a sensitivity to others. None of us has made it, but it's, it's, these are the areas that trip us up so easily in these non-moral areas. It really it trips us up because we don't know how to handle it. Well... I wanted to get into verse 16, too, but obviously we didn't make that. So next week we will deal with 16. We'll start there. But this discussion about verse, did this help or did this so confuse you you don't have a clue what I was even trying to get across? I mean, this is, a, this is an important, this is what we need to teach our children and our grandchildren. How do you help them learn to make wise decisions in the non-moral areas of life? So maybe you can expand next week on how to rebuke sharply in a constructive fashion. I'd be happy to. <laughs> hey, we are grown children. And no, no, but I mean, see, you know, Hebrews talks about stimulating and encouraging one another to love and good deeds. We're in this together. Nobody's made it. I mean, it's and that's that's. I mean, I love to do this kind of thing because it's what I've done all my life, but. So the questions and anything you want to deal with this, but this is, honestly, I don't think I've ever heard a message from the pulpit on this. And yet it's 31 times it's in the New Testament. It's a really important word. Now I don't mean to to chastise any pastor. That's not what I'm saying. It's just this is so central to our walk with the Lord, and we don't talk about it very much. What does conscience mean? How do I look at that word? Keeps your Popping up. <laughs> and we have the Jiminy Cricket idea where we have the old, you know, those old cartoons. There's one cloud of, you know, an angel floating around heaven and then the other cloud of the red horn, you know, whatever it is, you know. And that's supposed to be conscience. Yeah, nah, no, but so what is it? So, yeah, uh, real quickly. Can you next week talk about the soul and how it relates to that? Is it the same thing? Is it a different thing? Is it a cousin up? Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. I think that there is a major difference between how the Bible uses suke, soul, and, and conscience. They are connected, but they're very different. All right, listen, we got to go. The, the papers, the notebooks are closed. The Bibles are closed. Your body language indicates Ekman is time to shut up. So I'm going to pray and we'll get out of here. Lord, thank you. We've had, I hope, I hope it was a valuable discussion on why Paul talks about conscience and mind and relationship to how we look at material things. 
to the pure, to those who walk with the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, all things are pure. We do all to the glory of God. There is no sacred secular dichotomy. For us, everything is sacred. Whether we're brushing our teeth, going to the doctors, mowing our grass, uh, working, or going to church, all things are under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of all things. So every facet and dimension of our life is important to you. And that means in a lot of these non-moral areas where people are making all kinds of choices, our goal is to be wise and discerning and prudent and understanding and what is wisest for us in some of these areas that are morally neutral, but yet they can have an enormous effect on our lives. So, Lord, that's part of the struggle of how to live wisely. And uh, for so many, it's just so much easier. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. And that's, that's not healthy. That's not sound. And it, it really it can also be very detrimental. So, Lord, we've said a lot. I hope it's been beneficial. If I said anything that was not of your spirit, dismiss it from our minds. But help us to focus on the clear, clear teaching of what Paul's laying out for Titus here. Take care of us as we go our separate ways now. May we be a blessing to others as we represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.